Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. At the ladies' tea this afternoon where my wife spoke, she had available during that tea a, a very small supply of her books, and there was requests. There were requests for more. And she has written a book called uh, The Personal Touch, which reflects something of the centrality of her ministry. And that book will be available in the rear. My wife, I think, will be standing right in the back with uh, copies of The Personal Touch, if that's of interest to you to receive. And also in the back, some have asked about about counseling this week. Several have approached me, and because of my schedule with the videotaping this week, I've just not had the time that I wish I would have had to be able to chat with more of you personally. I've had some very significant conversations, but many more have had to be um, postponed due to schedule. But many have asked about, about counselors and counseling, and let me just say a word about that. We do have some brochures in the back of our ministry, which is called the Institute of Biblical Counseling, little white brochures, and there's a phone number in that brochure, which if you would like to know about a counselor in your area that, that we endorse, if that's of any value to you, um, we do keep a list of all the counselors that we know personally well enough to endorse in your area, and you're welcome to call our office, and they'll, uh, you tell them where you're from, and they'll look at the list, and everybody on that list, either myself or my associate, Dan Allender, knows that individual well enough to feel that from at least our perspective, and you do understand in the field of counseling, there's a lot of perspectives. There's a whole lot of perspectives. But um, from our perspective, the folks that we have on the list are people that we can strongly endorse. About 10, 12 years ago, I guess it's been, Dr. Jay Adams, many of you know Jay, his writings, his number one associate, a fellow named John Bettler, hosted a conference in Westminster at Westminster Seminary about, oh, I don't know how many years ago, 10, 15 years. And to that two-day seminar, he invited a number of the folks who at that time had been doing some writing in the field of Christian counseling and uh, folks that were taking some different and in some cases opposed positions. He invited Bruce Narramore, many of you know that name, and his associate John Carter. He invited Henry Brandt, Gary Collins, uh, Jay Adams was invited, and I was invited. And we got together for two days to ask the question, what is biblical counseling? Now, are you aware of the writings of the men that I've mentioned? And are you aware there are a few shades of difference of opinion? Getting that bunch together and asking what is biblical counseling is kind of like getting together a, an ah-mill, a pre-mill, and a post-mill and saying, what does a future hold? There's a few differences. <laughs> but we take a position, and you've heard some of the thinking that we reflect at IBC, and if that's of interest to you, then pick up a brochure. You can call our office and get a get a name in your area if that's of interest. And secondly, uh, in the brochure, it lists the seminars that we do. My associate and I do, do seminars uh, that last a week. They start Monday night and go till Saturday noon, all day, every day, 35 hours of lecture. It's a long haul between my associate and I who do all the lecturing. And it's uh, meant to be for people, not just professional counselors. We get a fair number of those, but just committed Christians. There's no prerequisites of knowledge or training. But those who would like to know how to think, perhaps, in some different categories about people and their struggles and how to move into their lives according to biblical directions. So you're welcome to come to those. We do have one in Philadelphia that's scheduled. We're actually doing our week-long seminar and dividing it in two parts, two weekends, one in September and one in November. If that's of any interest, please feel free to pick up, to pick up um, one of our brochures.
Let's pray as we begin. Father, because of some of the conversations this week that I've had with a few folks, and just because of my knowledge of myself, I'm aware that there are so many here that are feeling real frustration with what it means to find you. And Father, there are some that are hoping that I'm going to say something that will open it all up for them. Father, you know what I'm going to say, and you know it's not going to happen. But you also know that by your Spirit, you can open up that which we need to know tonight in our pursuit of you. Father, for that person who wrote to me with such frustration in their letter, may tonight be significant. Use comments that come from a heart that has a long way to go a mouth that doesn't know how to frame words very well sometimes and make the evening count for your purposes. Help us to be drawn to Christ. Without him there's no life. We believe that, but we want to believe it more deeply. Use tonight for those purposes in Jesus' name. Amen. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. No conditions to that in terms of if your circumstances are pleasant or if things aren't too tough. When you seek me, the only condition is seeking me with all your heart. The only condition for finding the Lord, I'm speaking to Christians now, Christians have already found him as Savior. The only condition for a Christian finding the Lord more deeply is a diligent search, an earnest pursuit, a passionate panting after God as revealed through Christ. So what does that mean? How do we go about finding God and developing a confidence in his goodness that frees us to continue on with meaning and with joy? Several years ago, a young woman, I'll call her Amy, came to see me, 25-year-old young lady, and she came for counseling. She was actually a student of ours, and she asked if I could counsel her as well, and I had the time, I did. And her presenting problem, her initial complaint that drove her to seek a counselor, was that she was suffering from a lot of anxiety. She was really nervous all the time. When I first made her acquaintance, she literally was shaking, and it wasn't shaking because of meeting me, who was her professor. She would shake in meeting anybody new. She was subject to unpredictable and extreme panic attacks. She was living with chronic anxiety, and she asked for help. Let me tell you Amy's story, just to make my initial point. Amy's mother had died when she was three years old. By the way, let me give you a a little one-minute lesson in counseling. You know what counseling is really all about? It's listening to people tell their stories and knowing what to listen for because the Bible explains people well. That's all it is. It's listening to people tell the story of their lives, their disappointments, their frustrations, their happiness, their joy, their... Disappointment with God. Listening to people tell their stories, but listening with categories that the Bible supplies that tells you what to listen for and what's important. Now, you listen to Amy's story for just a moment and and see what you hear, see what you listen. She told me her father or her mother died when she was three years old. And shortly after her mother's death, as she remembers and obviously had been told the story, her father remarried. About six months, eight months after her mother's death, and the woman that she had been raised with ever since she was three and a half was, of course, the woman she knew as her mother. 
She had gone away to school when she was 18 or 19, had finished uh, college, had taken a job, and was now in our counseling program. And she was suffering from anxiety very badly and had been ever since she was about 21 when a cousin came to visit her. A cousin that she hadn't seen for years, and the two of them got together and reminisced about family sorts of things, and the cousin said to her, Amy, tell me how you've handled your mother's suicide. And Amy's mouth dropped in surprise. The cousin didn't know that Amy didn't know. And Amy said, Mother committed suicide? And the story was this. The cousin had opened the door, and so he told Amy the whole story, an older cousin who knew the story well, an accurate story, a tragic story, that Amy's natural mother and her father were not getting along, and her father was in the middle of an affair and had told Amy's mother that he was going to divorce her and marry the other woman. Amy's mother had pled with her husband, don't do that, I can't stand the thought of being a divorced woman, you must not leave me, and he remained adamant. You ever see a husband when they're adamant to get a divorce? One of the hardest cases I ever had, a couple came into my office and sat down, forgive a little intrusion here, my mind is not very organized sat down in my office and the woman was 50 some years old her husband was sitting there looking mean as could be and she said uh, he's going to leave me turned to him and said want to tell me about it he said I'm going to leave her that's all there is to it hard as nails it became clear in the next few minutes that he was coming to see me as a counselor only because his lawyer had said go to see a counselor spend a couple of bucks in a couple of sessions then you can tell the judge you tried and that'll make your settlement more agreeable in your favor folks have you ever lost your temper Psychologists aren't supposed to lose your temper. I lost my temper that day. It's the only time in my office I've ever lost my temper. When I realized what a mean, arrogant son of a gun this guy was, and he was just cruel and vicious and demeaning to this crushed, broken woman, I stood up and I said, you get out of my office. And I followed him down the hallway, yelling at him. <laughs> and I said to him, I pray God's severest judgment on your unholy head. The next patient waiting in the room was a little bit shook by that. <laughs> Sometimes husbands can be impossible. Well, back to the original story. Amy's father refused to back down and said, No, I don't love you anymore. I love my mistress and I'm going to divorce you and marry her. Amy's mother became so disconsolate that one night when Amy was three, she went to Amy and said, Honey, Mommy's sick tonight. I need to sleep away from your father so I don't make him sick. Would you climb in bed with your dad and let me have your bed? That night she overdosed and took her life. Amy learned that at age 21. Within two weeks of going home to visit, mother and dad. Now you're Amy. What do you do? You're going to go home in two weeks to visit a father who was the cause of your mother's suicide, at least in some significant sense. You're going to go home to visit the woman you've called mother for the last 18, 17, 18, 19 years, a woman that your father was having an affair with that he now married. You're going to go home and visit mom and dad. How do you find God? Is that what Amy did? She began memorizing the Bible like mad. Is that how you find God? She literally memorized whole books of the New Testament. Some of the shorter books, but she memorized them. 
And she was saying, if I can just immerse myself in the Bible, then maybe God will speak to me through his word, because his word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it does move into your life. It is a lamp to our feet. It is the, it is the, the, the word of God through which he speaks, and it will accomplish its purpose. If I just memorize the word, if I get into the word, then it'll all be all right. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I'm all for Bible memory, but don't use that verse to support it. Because the verse that says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee, the word for hid is a very unusual Hebrew word that occurs only a few times in the Old Testament. One significant time it was used was when we're told that Moses' mother hid him in the bulrushes. The idea is to put something where it can never be taken from you. Put something deep in the soul where all the pain is. What Amy was doing by memorizing the Bible as earnestly as she was doing, she was not pursuing God. She was fleeing pain. And there's a world of difference in the two. Let me suggest to you that if we're going to pursue God, of course there's a place for Bible memory, of course there's a central place for time in the Word, but not for wrong purposes. We need to come to the Word in the context of facing what's true in our lives, and facing what's true in our own hearts about how frustrated we are and how discouraged we are or how fulfilled we are for all the wrong reasons. We need to face what's true in life and in our own hearts until we begin to ask the really hard questions. God, how do I change? What are you supposed to be doing? I don't understand this. And until those questions that are hard become preoccupying. And as you ask the hard questions, that's our theme for these few talks, don't expect an answer, but do expect a disclosure of the person of Christ. They call me a psychologist, that's my degree. But as the years continue, I find myself less eager to wear that label and more eager to refer to myself as a theologian of sanctification, maybe a very poor theologian, but one who wants to be a theologian of change and sanctification. That's all good therapy, good counseling is all about, is how does the Spirit of God change people? Now, what I said this morning, I can summarize in two points and then move on to my next point. We need to be asking questions until God disrupts us by exposing our demanding spirits. We need to ask the hard questions until God disrupts us by exposing the demanding spirit beneath the questions and we dissolve in brokenness before him. And secondly, we need to be asking the hard questions till God entices us by revealing the deepest longings of our soul so fully that we stop demanding relief and begin clinging to the Savior in desperate trust. God disrupts and God entices. And questions are the route through which God disrupts by exposing our demanding spirit until we're dissolved in brokenness. And questions are the means as we say, God, well, but I hurt so bad, but it's so, so hard to realize that my father lets me down in this way, that my husband is so cold, that my kids are breaking in my heart, that I'm single and lonely and I can't stand one more night by myself. God, I'm hurting until God begins to expose the deepest longings of your soul and brings you to a point where you realize that your thirst is so deep 
that if everything went right in your life and all the things you wish were different, your husband were nicer, your kids were doing better, you were married, whatever the situation is you want changed, until you begin to realize no matter what circumstance changes, there's still something in your soul that aches for, for more. Ask questions till God disrupts you by showing you your demanding spirit, your dissolved and brokenness. Ask questions till God entices you by revealing the deepest longings of your soul that no one can touch. And you begin clinging to him in desperate trust. We talked about four key questions this morning. Keying off the passage in 1 John where he talks about little children who are forgiven, aware of their forgiveness that Jesus has provided them. They're in the family. And they ask the question, God... I had some expectations as to what your love would look like, and I thought you'd take care of me in certain ways. I was willing to suffer in these ways, and all of us are like this, but there's one kind of suffering I'm not willing to go through. I hear people tell me stories about their lives, and something inside of me says, I'm willing to go through this, 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 and this, but not that. And then when that comes, they start saying, do you love me or not? Little children have learned that God loves them, but they become assured that God loves them, when their understanding of love is changed by asking the question passionately until God responds by saying, no, I do not love you the way you define love. I'm good, but I'm not safe. I'm disruptive. I'm going to disrupt that structure within you. Why? Because I'm mad at you? No, I'm not mad at you. I baptized my son a couple years ago and real thrill for me. And as I baptized him, I said this to him, I said, son, in just a few moments, I'm going to put you under the water. And among other things, I said this, when you come up from the water, I want you to realize that this is a symbol of the fact that God is no longer mad at you. He just loves you all the time. But it's not the way you think he should. He'll disrupt you. He's not safe, but he's good. Question number one. Now question number two. Let's shift. Young men, we talked this morning, Young men are those who have gone beyond the little child stage of maturity, still aware of God's love with a greater depth because of the question, but now they're aware as they move into life, as they leave the stage of innocence and naivete as little children, they're aware that life really is a battle. I can recall Rachel one time in bed a few years ago turned to me after wrestling with some real difficult things in our marriage and our lives, and she said, is life supposed to be this hard? The answer is sometimes. We're not home. Young men, young women, are those who are aware of those who are aware of the battle. Now, what's the battle that you face? Well, that could be answered in a thousand different ways. Let me hone in on one particular aspect of the battle that all of us face. Isn't it true that all of us every day face decisions in our lives, challenges, problems that come up, and we've got to decide what to do? Whether it's internal problems with frustration, disappointment, hurt, feelings of rejection, feelings of self-hatred, whether it's that kind of thing, or whether it's decisions as to whether to date this particular guy or propose to this particular woman or how to handle the tension in our marriage in this particular way or what to do with our kid when this decision comes up. And we, we face life and we realize that we've got to make a lot of big decisions that have enormous consequences every day. And we turn to God and we ask him the question that young men Young women facing the battle ask, question number two, the question is simple, God, will you help me? Little children say, God, do you love me? Young men ask the question, God, I'm really lonely. Are you going to help me with this? 
God, I've got a decision to make with my child. Will you help me with this, God? My, my baby daughter has just been born. A gentleman talked today about his 12-year-old, 12-week-old daughter. And he said, I want to be a good dad to that little girl. And that came out of a heart of love. And as he starts facing the realities of the fact that his cute little daughter is depraved, he's going to have a whole lot of questions to ask. Well, do I spank her now or do I not spank her now? Is she being bad or just kind of little kiddish? Do I give her a hug or do I discipline her? I don't know. God, do you help? You all face that in the battle of life? I want you to take your Bibles. I want to develop a thought. You turn to Genesis chapter 3. God, will you help? I'm facing some battles. I want you to help. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. That was a mistake. And you must not touch it. That was a mistake. Or you will die. God said you will surely die. The serpent responds, You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. Now keep that passage in your mind as I set the stage for the point that I want to make from it. God, will you help? I want you all to think of a situation in your life where you just don't know what to do. Is that easy? A few months ago, my wife was away doing a weekend conference for a group of women, about an hour and a half away from our home, and she was going to be coming home on a, I think it might have been a Saturday night or a Sunday afternoon, I forget the exact timing, and she called me from the conference ground. She was about to leave, about to get in the car and drive the hour and a half drive to come home, and she called me, and uh, I answered the phone, and she said, Hi, honey, the weekend was great. I'm just so excited. And I said, Well, super. That sounds wonderful. And she said, Let me tell you all about it. She had called Collect. And she was just excited because the Spirit of God had done just some wonderful things that weekend, and Rachel was just really flying high in some wonderful ways, and she wanted to share with her husband some of the joy of what God had been doing that weekend. And all I could think about was, you know, if you got in the car and just drove home... It'd be cheaper. We'd be together, and you could tell me everything when you get home. So I'm thinking like this as she's starting to go on, and I could tell it was going to go on for a while because she was so excited. And so I broke in, being the head of my home, and I said, um, I said, honey, why don't you, you know, it sounds great. I'd love to hear about it. Man, I'd love to hear you tell it to me like firsthand. I mean, right here in front of me. I want to see you. Why don't you kind of save it until you drive home? Get in the car and come on home, and I'll wait for you. We'll talk all night if you like. Is there a wife in the world who is not capable of discerning her husband's true intent? <laughs> Rachel's excitement immediately disappeared. And she said, oh, okay. I waited for an hour and a half, heard the garage door go up, 
Now, normally, when the garage door goes up, but I know it's Rachel coming in, I don't run out to the garage. But this time, I felt an urge to do that. Why? Is that loving my wife or is that protecting myself? Do you understand it's possible to sin by kissing your wife? Do you ever walk in the door late and your wife begins getting on you so you want to stop her? The only way to stop her is to put your lips on top of hers and press hard? <laughs> I heard the garage door come up and so I went out to the garage and um, she got out of the out of the car and I walked up and said, Hi, hon, good to see you and walked over, you know, and the hug that she gave back wasn't real warm. I picked right up on that. <laughs> Question. What does a good husband do at that moment? Everybody clear on the answer to that? You all know? There's tension between me and my wife. I don't like tension between me and my wife. She doesn't like it either. She hates it. Now it's there. All right, I blew it. So what do you say? Honey, I know I blew it. God, will you help? Will you tell me what to do? Will you let me know what I'm supposed to do with my little daughter when I find out the neighbor molested her? God, will you tell me what to do when I realize that our credit cards have gotten out of hand and yeah, there are biblical principles and I'm going to do all that, but God, it seems that after I do all that I know to do, something's still missing. God, will you help me really get my life in shape? God, I'm hurting so bad over what's just happened. God, will you, will you tell me what to do so I can get things straightened out? God, will you tell me what to do in the garage with my wife when she and I are distant? How's God answer that when you ask the same question? Did you know that men are angry? I led a men's group a while ago, and I said to them, "You guys, are you guys mad like me?" I said, "What do you mean?" And I said, "Well, I'm not proud of this, but there are times that I'm walking down the steps and somebody's in front of me. Something inside of me rises up, and I get this little thought: Wouldn't it be fun to push?" And watch the person tumble down the steps, and you know you made it happen. There's something satisfying about that. I said, do you guys relate to that? And, oh, yeah, he says. Is that what you mean by being angry? And I said, yeah. One guy says, oh, man, my favorite fantasy is tying an I-beam to the front of my car and going out in the traffic. Gentlemen, let me tell you something about the shape of a man's soul. I believe a man's soul is shaped differently than a woman's soul, just as his body is shaped differently than a woman's body. I believe the body is a parable of the soul. Our bodies are shaped differently, but they reflect a deeper difference in a male and a female. I believe men were designed to move into our worlds with benevolent aggression, not pushing people down steps not putting I-beams in front of cars and going into traffic. But I believe men were designed, can I put it traditionally, to lead. Men were designed to move with benevolent passion into our worlds, but that design has been corrupted by an anger, a vicious, ungodly anger that's born of a deep sense of inadequacy that God will not help us as we move. 
And therefore, what you and I as men do is we're committed, gentlemen, to playing it safe. We live by code as opposed to by courage. When there's a clear game plan, I know what I'm supposed to do, I know what will work, then I can do it. I'm a dentist, I know how to fix teeth, my wife's mad at me, I haven't got a clue, I'll fix more teeth. There's a game plan over here. I can live by code. Your tooth hurts? Great. I'm well trained. I'll fix it up. Your soul hurts? Beats me. See a counselor. You want to pray together? I don't know. We live by code, not by courage. I was doing a Bible study for a NFL football team last season. It's a big linebacker, an all-star linebacker, huge guy. Knocks people over for a living. Was sitting in front of me with his wife. who was about 5'4", maybe 115 pounds. He was terrified of her. And I said to her, I said, when does your husband clam up? Every wife complains that her husband doesn't share deeply enough. When does your husband just kind of retreat and back off and do nothing? And she said, oh, boy, that's easy. Every time that I get frustrated and kind of come on to him about something, he just kind of retreats and shuts up. I turned to this guy. I said, why do you do that? You know what he said? I don't know what to do. And I looked at him and I said, from a distance, because he was big. <laughs> I said, you don't have a playbook for how to deal with your wife. That's why you're fantastic every Sunday afternoon in the football field. And that's why you're a failure with your wife. You aren't a man of courage. In the garage, what does a man do when his wife and he are having attention? You turn to God and say, God, will you help? What do I do with this woman? How do I make this work? I go to the Bible and I read, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Yeah, but what does that mean now? I don't know how to translate the general principle into the specific. If I go to give her a hug, she's going to retreat. If I say, I'm sorry, she's not going to believe me. No matter what I do, it's not going to work. I don't have a game plan. I don't have a clear code as to what to do. So what do men do? Well, what do you do, guys? I do what I did. I just kind of said, well, good to see you, and walked in and watched television. <laughs> She'll be all right in the morning. I mean, she always is, you know. Where do we get that from? Why are we so terrified of our wives? There's no code for dealing with relationships. There's a code for everything else. The most important dimension of life, there's no clear game plan. I talked to a bomber pilot in Desert Storm, just the recent war. And he told me, and he meant it deeply. He wasn't putting me on. He said, you won't believe this, but I mean it. He said, I had less fear flying over Iraq and dropping bombs than going home to my wife and trying to rebuild the connection that had been lost between us. He was a trained pilot. He knew how to fly a plane and how to drop a bomb. He had no idea how to move toward his wife. Why? Because there are no ideas on how to move toward your wives. There's no code. No code for relationships. We back away. Why? I read Genesis 3 to you. Let me ask you a question. As I read this, see if you can answer it based on what I just read. It's a very familiar passage. Where was Adam... When the serpent tempted Eve. You ever think about that? Where was Adam 
when the cunning serpent came up and began talking to Eve and said, and said let me talk to you about, maybe God is holding out on you. And the, the, the serpent deceived Eve. She was, to, she was completely, totally deceived because of the serpent's conversation with her. While all that took place, where was Adam? Until some time ago, I guess I had in my mind, as I think many people do, that Adam was somewhere else and that the serpent found the time when Eve was by herself. But that's not what the text says. Look what it says. The end of verse 6. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. I had a New Testament, Old Testament scholar rather tell me that that was clear indication that Adam was in fact right there while Eve was being seduced by the serpent. Well, it occurred to me that's true, that's pretty important. So I called up six Old Testament scholars that I know across the country. And I said to each one of these top-level scholars, was Adam there when the serpent tempted Eve? And of the six, one said, I'm not sure. The text could read either way. Five said it's conclusive. He was there. One was interesting. A friend of mine, top-level scholar, called him up and I said, i um, got a question for you. Was Adam there when the serpent tempted Eve? And he said, nah, he wasn't there. And I said, that sounds kind of a casual response. He said, well, he wasn't there. And I said, you ever think about it before? He said, well, no. <laughs> and I said, well, think about it. And he said, all right. You mean now? And I said, yeah, think about it now. <laughs> and he said, all right. I said, get your Hebrew Bible. Read it. Look at it. Tell me what it says. So this guy went and got his Hebrew text and opened it up. And I'm on the phone. And he's there muttering away in Hebrew for about 10 minutes. And after muttering away in Hebrew for 10 minutes, this is exactly the true story, this is what happened. After 10 minutes of muttering in Hebrew, he shrieked into the phone and said, that son of a gun was there. <laughs> now, the question is, if Adam was there, here's the big question, why didn't he speak? Why didn't the football player speak? Why did I leave the garage and go watch television? It's the disease of masculinity. Oh, I mean that. It's the disease of masculinity. Why didn't Adam speak? I'll tell you why I think he didn't speak. God never came to him, at least we have no record of it. God never came to Adam and said, not about two weeks, the serpent's going to come up. Talk to your wife. And when it happens, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to help you, Adam, by giving you a code. Never did that. And now the serpent comes up, and Adam was in the middle of a wonderful existence, so much better than we can imagine. Everything was going well. Haven't you all been in situations where things are going wonderfully, and all of a sudden, something goes wrong? You're having a great evening, the kids are doing their homework, and, you know, a good television show is on, the meal has been great, the carrot meatloaf was not served that night, and <laughs> Chuck's wife didn't serve it. And then something goes wrong. And inside, you just go, jeez, why does something have to, what am I supposed to do now for crying out loud? Why can't, oh, folks, you're out of the garden. It's what you got to expect. But what am I supposed to do? I'll go talk to a counselor. Well, come talk to me and I'll say, mm -hmm. read my books and it'll give you some ideas, but you'll end up saying, mm -hmm. well, God, will you help? No more than he helped Adam. He gave Adam a principle. What did Adam do? Question, better question, what should Adam have done? Eve 
turned to him. Obviously, when the serpent was tempting Eve, he should have done something. Get a rake and kill that snake, something. <laughs> Grab his wife and take off. You know, we're getting out of here, lady. You say, wait a minute, what you're saying is wrong. Honey, I want to tell you something. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago, before you were around, God talked to me. He's getting it wrong, and I want to make sure you understand. Whether you listen to me or not, I'm going to represent the truth. He didn't do anything like that. He kept his mouth shut. And then Eve now is a sinner. She's eaten of the fruit. She turns to Adam, who was with her, and what should he have done at that point? He should have gone to God and said, God, I don't understand any of this. Sin is new to me. Disobedience is new to me. I don't know how you handle it, but God, I'm coming to you because you're my only hope. I plead mercy on behalf of my wife. I'm going to stick with you, trusting in your character. You'll find a way to restore to me all that my soul delights in. You'll take care of this problem somehow. I cast myself on you in full confidence in you. He didn't do that. He said, I'm not sure about you. I'm going to keep her. God never gave him a code. What he said was, you must have the courage to create as an image bearer a response that reflects your confidence in me. God, will you help? You know how God answers that question? No. Not as you require me to. To help you as you require me to would be an insult to your creative capacity as an image bearer. I'm strong, but I'm not cooperative. I'm strong, but I'm not cooperative. What are you facing? You haven't got a clue. Some of you are in the garage right now with the one sitting next to you. Some of you husbands are sitting there determined you're not going to break the silence. I'll close in prayer in a little bit and you'll go out and get some ice cream. And you'll say, interesting, huh? My wife will say, honey, did you, what did you think about that? This guy tells a pretty good story. His voice isn't as deep as Steve's, but you know, it's, it's a pretty good week. I enjoyed it. I hadn't thought about that Adam stuff before. It's interesting. What do you want, honey? Root beer flow? That's what I want it. Great. Let's get the kids. You don't know what to do. Nobody's going to tell you. No counselor. Not even God. All he'll say is, reflect my character. Pursue the one with whom you have distance. But how do I do it? You figure it out. But I don't know how to do it. Oh, wives, what do you enjoy? A skillful husband or a committed husband? Somebody who's mastered the communication techniques or somebody who's a total stumble bum, but he's in there trying. So you figure out, well, I'll try this. Will it work? Probably not. And then when it doesn't work, you come back to God and say, are you going to help me or not? And you keep asking until you're broken by your demanding spirit. And you enjoy mercy more than anything else. Keep asking until you're drawn to God by the enticement of knowing Him. That's the second question. God, will you help? Third question. Young men still ask it. Little children say, God, do you love me? 
Young men say, God, will you help? And then the second question young men, young women say, as they grow in their faith and become aware of the battle and know that they have to move into life and they know there's questions to face that they can't answer, there's decisions that they don't know how to make, and they come before God and say, God, will you help? And he says to both men and women, you're creative image bearers. You move into your worlds. You decide within the context of reflecting my character, you create a response. And when you fail, trust me, I'll still work through your good heart to accomplish good purposes. Eventually, you maintain your confidence in me. That's how I'll help. It's not what I want. It's what I give. Third question, still of young men. God, I already figured out you don't love me like I want you to. I want you to make everything go away. I want you to be safe so I don't hurt. You don't love me like that, do you? No, I don't. I love you better than that. Because I know you have a serious problem. I'm going to take care of it to make you capable of enjoying me. They don't love me like I want you to? Oh, trust me, my love is far better. You won't help me? Not by telling you what to do. I won't treat you like a baby. You bear my image. Exercise your creative capacities. I've given you a new heart. Yield to that. Make your decisions. You'll make mistakes. I'll be with you. Well, God, if you don't love me like I want, if you want to help me as I want, God, will you at least, third question, will you heal me? Will you at least heal my soul so I don't feel so bad about myself and about life? God, will you heal me? So at two in the morning, I know the meaning of the word peace. God, will you heal me of this terrible self-image so I can at least feel good about myself as a person? God, you know what happened in my childhood. Are you going to heal me of that so I don't have to hate myself so badly? All this shame that fills my soul. Folks, the evangelical community is getting obsessed with helping people to be released from shame. It's a good thing to do. It's never priority. God, will you heal me? Behind the question is what? Nothing matters more than what I feel right now. I'm the point. You're useful. Will you heal me? Keep asking the question until he disrupts you by revealing the demanding spirit behind the question. And then you'll enjoy mercy more than healing. You'll see in the cross the solution to your deepest problem, even if your self-image stays bad. You know it's possible to be spiritual and useful and have a difficult self-image. Will you heal me? Will you at least heal my soul? Turn to Ezekiel. We're going to make a few thoughts and I'm going to quit. Turn to Ezekiel. Turn to chapter 2. In the days of Ezekiel, the Israelites had been in captivity now for about four years as the book commences, something in that vicinity. Most of them had been deported forcibly from their home. They weren't living in terrible circumstances, but they were away. And life wasn't so good. Life was hard. And God, after four years of not saying a word to his children who were in difficult situations, they had been taken away and were now in captivity. God comes to them and says in chapter 2 and verse 1, talking to Ezekiel, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I'll speak to you. And as he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Now remember, God is speaking about people who are hurting. What should God do when he comes to you when you're hurting? He said this to the Jews who were hurting back in Ezekiel's day, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. God, that's not good counseling. 
You would have come and say, I'm sending you to our hurting people and I'm going to provide a bomb for their wounds. God, what is it with you? Isn't it true most of us are overwhelmed by our pain? What's God overwhelmed by? Look at chapter 3 and verse 12. The Spirit lifted me up. Ezekiel talking now. He had received the message of God. He had eaten it. And I heard behind me a loud rumbling sound, the sound of the wings of the living creatures brushing against each other and the sound of the wheels beside them, a loud rumbling sound. The Spirit then lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness and the anger of my spirit against what? He had now eaten the word of God, and now he wasn't bitter and angry about the pain that his people were suffering. He went in the bitterness and anger of my spirit with a strong hand, Lord, upon me. I came to the exiles, lived to Tel Aviv, near the Kibar River, and there where they were living, I sat among them for seven days. But there is a point to it. A woman approached me about two years ago. We were doing a seminar, a week-long seminar. She asked me Thursday morning if she could have some time. While Dan was speaking, she and I went out and chatted, and she told me this story. She said, I'm at your seminar, and I've come with my counselor, a friend of mine, who over the years of counseling me, 10 years of a counseling relationship, has become a very close friend. And we two women have come together in a rooming in a hotel together during your seminar this week. And last night... When the seminar was over at 9 o'clock, we got in our rented car to go back to the hotel, and my friend the counselor turned to me and said, if you're, if you're struggling with some of the stuff that Larry and Dan are teaching, could you, could you kind of not mention it to me tonight? I'm struggling too. I'm kind of hurting about a few things. I've been saying some things in my own life, and I'm really struggling, and I don't feel up to it to give to you tonight, the counselor said to the woman who was talking to me. And the woman who was talking to me told me that she felt an irrational anger toward this woman who had been a wonderful counselor, a faithful, loyal friend for ten years, and she felt an anger toward her as if to say, but I'm a hurting too and somebody ought to come through for me. What's wrong with people? Why don't they come through for me? And she said to me, I know I shouldn't feel that way. She's been a wonderful friend, but I got furious at her. Can you help me with my problem? We talked for an hour. I said, tell me your story and listen to a story she told me from ages five to ten common story. I don't tell it for shock value. Far more common than most of us think. From ages 5 to 10, my father sold me to our landlord once a month for rent. Every month, he would drive me from a five-year-old girl every month till I was 10 to the landlord's home. He'd take me on his lap, and this was the worst part, she said, and he would hold me very fatherly in a very affectionate, appropriate way. said, honey, thanks so much for what you're doing for the family. He would take me to the landlord, and the landlord would abuse me for the day, and that was rent for the month. Does that scar a little girl's soul? Sure it does. Some of you women right now, as I tell the story, are about to break in tears. As I heard that, I was incensed. I said, I want to see your father and hit him. She said, that's the worst thing. And I said, my goodness, what else? When I was three years old, I was in the second floor in our bedroom, my brother and I, a few years older than I, we were looking down through a heating vent in the floor of our bedroom threw an unused heating duct about two feet deep into the ceiling of the living room below into another heating vent that we could see through. And we were watching Mother and Dad wrap Christmas gifts a week or two before Christmas. And I didn't notice as I was watching Mother wrap the gifts that Mother left the room, my brother did, and he took off, Mother up the stairs, and saw me wrapping the gifts, or, or saw me watching her, looking at the gifts. What should a parent do catching your little daughter peeking a look at the Christmas gifts? I think you ought to just say, oh, no, 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 no. All right, you can have one, but you got to wait. I'll just have some fun with that. This mother was psychotic and evil. There's no other way to describe her. She ripped off the heating vent and stuck her little girl in the heating dock and left her there for three days. She told me that story, and I felt like you did. You all went, oh, and I went, oh. 
I can't believe the horrors of what some image bearers go through. And as she told me that story, my next sentence to her was, tell me how you worship. Why would I ask something as irrelevantly religious as that? How do you worship a God who permits that to happen to little girls? She looked at me and her tone changed and she got hard, mean, cold, and angry and she said, I don't. She said, the first time I ever prayed in my life was when I was in that hole for three days and I prayed and I said, God, let me die. He didn't answer my prayer. He's not good. What overwhelms you the most about the story? When you're a counselor and you hear stories like that, it's pretty hard to stay centered on what really needs to overwhelm us. Folks, does it sound harsh when I say that pain is never a more serious problem than self-centeredness. Pain is never a more serious problem than self-centeredness. And I said to her, let me tell you what I think has happened because of all the difficult things in your background, your soul has just rebelled, your fist is clenched at God, and now you're saying, I doubt your goodness to the point where I'm leaving you, I'm going to find some way to survive, I'm going to live my life in a pathetic kind of way, manipulating people to move toward me and take care of my soul, and this counselor wouldn't do it, doesn't she know what I'm owed? The purposes of justice should revolve around people taking care of me. And I said, ma'am, you've got a far worse problem than all the scars in your soul, which I feel terrible about, and I'd love to help you work through. Your worst problem is you're self-centered. What overwhelms you most? And you're assuming that when you got irrationally angry at your friend last night and blew up at her and haven't spoken to her since, that somehow it's justified by the pain. It's not. More overwhelmed by God's failure to be good on our terms than by our refusal to trust him as good. God, will you heal me? How does he answer? No. Not with the relief you demand. I'm tender, but I'm not soothing. Keep asking you're disrupted by the awfulness of your demanding spirit and you crumble in brokenness before him. You see your sin as a more serious problem than your pain and his forgiveness is far more valuable than his healing. Overwhelmed by mercy more than by anything else. Keep asking till you're enticed by the prospect of a God who promises to delight your soul with the richest affair, a God who doesn't always look good, but one who will reveal himself as good when you have no other hope but him. God, do you love me? No, not as you think of love. I'm good, but I'm not safe. I'll disrupt everything bad within you in order to make you capable of enjoying me. God, will you help me? No, not as you want me to. I'm strong, but I'm not cooperative. I've given you a new heart, and I expect you to move into life without a guaranteed game plan, trusting only in my goodness. God, will you heal me? No, not with the relief you demand. I'm tender, but I'm not soothing. Nothing matters more than my relationship with you. And listen to my final point. And your pain, all by itself, does not 
get in the way of your relationship with me. Was our Lord in pain? Did anything ever get in the way of his relationship with the Father? Answer, never his pain, only the sin that he became on our behalf. Pain never is the root cause of broken fellowship with the Father. It's always, ultimately, self-centeredness. Your pain does not get in the way of our relationship, but your self-centeredness does. Be overwhelmed by that, and my mercy will heal you, not of your poor self-image necessarily, although that's often a wonderful side benefit, but rather of your self-centeredness. And I will heal you not to better love yourself, but to better worship me and to love others. Tomorrow night, my closing talk, I want to raise the fourth question. God, will you reveal yourself to me? Let's pray. Father, so much is hard to understand about life. And you called us not to figure it all out, not to climb on top of our towers reaching into the heavens and figure it all out so we can manage it and reduce you to a predictable formula. Father, you've called us not to reduce you, what a horrible way to put it, but to worship you and to develop a confidence in your goodness that will free us in the middle of horrible memories that rip us into shreds. Somehow in the middle of those horrible memories and the difficult realities of our marriages today and whatever other problem might be going on to somehow come before you and to ask you the hard questions in the middle of moving toward you. You take delight in the fact that we're moving toward you even when our questions are foolish, but they're real because we're confused. Father, you want us to find you as a good God, find our sufficiency in you so that we can continue on with whatever problems might still be in our lives, no longer consumed by them, but continue on offering a life of good works and worship and service that pleases you, walking with you, pleasing with you, hating sin more than hating pain. Teach us what it is to walk as Enoch walked. Teach us what it is to wrestle with you in prayer until we're disrupted and we value mercy above everything else, until we're enticed and we pant after you as a deer pants after the water brooks. Father, I wish I could speak better. I wish I could say those things that will turn the key for someone. But your Spirit can do that according to your timetable. Help us to trust you, as you're never wrong. Help us to believe you never fail. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.